The Starlink network is coming online across the Pacific in some places sooner than you'd think and it goes back to about 2014 when the central bank revalued the Kina. Chronic fuel shortages in Papua New Guinea are possible symptoms of a foreign exchange crisis. The project lead for the Pacific Hub at Griffith University says the man next in line to be head of the most powerful Pacific regional body comes with a lot of baggage. Among the outcomes of the 2023 Pacific Islands Forum Special Leaders Retreat is the appointment of former Nauru President Baron Wanga to the role of Secretary General. This among a number of significant moments, including a traditional Mataninga Sao ceremony, which was performed as an apology for all the rifts within the forum. Lydia Lewis asked Dr. Tess Newton-Kane what the outcomes of the meeting mean for the Pacific region as a whole. Given that it was obviously a very short meeting, but very significant in the terms of not just what's happening this year, but also what's happened in the last few years. I think a number of important things happened. The biggest thing was the welcoming back or the return of Kiribati to the Pacific Pacific Islands Forum family. And I think we saw some really amazing vision of that. Henry Puna embracing President Ma'amau last year when Kiribati didn't come to Fiji. You know, there was a real air of sadness. So I think what we saw this time was a real air of joy that everyone was back together. One of the things that was really striking was the centrality and the importance of Pacific cultural diplomacy within this whole thing. So when Prime Minister Rambuka went to Tarawa, he performed a, a traditional apology. We saw those pictures of him sitting on the floor and presenting customary gifts in, in an act of contrition and to, to promote reconciliation. And then we saw that again within the forum. And I think it's really important that people realise just how significant that is in a Pacific context. It's very easy for outsiders to see it as something maybe a bit quaint or kind of like the entertainment, but it's not. It's actually central to how Pacific Island countries engage with each other. So I thought that was obviously really important. And then following on from that, and it's kind of like the, the, the domino effect is that we've now, we now have the full detail of how the Suva agreement is going to be operationalized, what that means in terms of uh, greater participation by Micronesian countries and greater recognition of their place within the group as a whole. And now that Kiribati is back in the fold, what could that mean for their relationship with China? We know that there were reports that China's influence and pressure drove Kiribati to leave. China refutes that claim. What do you make of it? Look, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I don't want to sort of make a speculation. The idea that China would try and persuade any country to leave the forum doesn't ring true for me. We've not seen them try to do it anywhere else. China has very close relationships with a number of Pacific Island countries. And in fact, to a certain extent, I don't know that it would be in China's interest. It makes more sense for them to have them in the forum and able to prosecute the, the good news stories that China might want to be heard in those in those multi multilateral arrangements. 
So I, I'm not convinced that it was a, a, a result of the China relationship. I think it was much more about divisions within the, the group as a whole. Kiribati back, it does allow for issues that affect the whole of the region, which go way beyond the impact of China to be discussed with, with all of the members of the forum now. Where does that leave the US? Both China and the US have announced special envoys. Yeah, so they, whilst they may look like they are mirror image, they're actually slightly different. So the US has announced uh, former Ambassador Frankie Reid as special envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum. And China has announced a special envoy to the Pacific Islands region. In terms of the US, you know, I think the US has struggled for a long time to get a full grip on Pacific regionalism and has struggled with the concept, with struggled with the issue of being a dialogue partner to the forum, which basically puts it at the same table as China, because China is a dialogue partner. And big news from the retreat was the appointment of the former Nauru president, Baron Wanga, to be the next secretary general. And this was the candidate, of course, that was put forward by the Micronesian President's Summit. What does this mean for the forum? Who is he? Tell us a bit about him. Well, I guess, you know, mainly what we know, he is the former president of uh, Nauru. As you said, he led the government for a number of years. More recently, he was the chair of the Commonwealth Observers Group to Papua New Guinea's elections last year. So he has been maintaining his presence in the in the region. He is a quite a controversial figure. Um, there were a number of issues that went on in Nauru whilst he was leading the government. Don't know that you can necessarily say that they're all directly as a result of him, but certainly he was leading the government that was in place when these things were happening. So what are these the things? Well, as we removal of the judiciary um, was a, a big one that kind of basically sort of took out the whole independent judiciary for Nauru, leaving a huge gap in terms of how the rule of law could be seen to be being actually employed. Um, and a lot of that stemmed from a case called the Nauru 19, which was prosecutions brought against a number of people, including members of the opposition, further to a protest at Parliament and that was a very long and contentious legal process, but the, certainly a number of the people who were on the wrong side of that, who were being prosecuted, have described it as being, you know, akin to a political witch hunt. So, you know, there's, there's a, there are other areas of controversy, including around how the regional processing centre was was managed and, and issues around, uh, in, you know, a failure of in the duty of care towards refugees and asylum seekers. So, that you know, that during that time, there were certainly a number of concerns raised about the quality of governance and the quality of democracy in Nauru. They weren't necessarily raised much by other members of the Pacific Island or the island members of the Pacific Island Forum. There were certainly concerns raised in both Australia and New Zealand. But within the island country leadership, um, things were a bit more muted, including there, was, there wasn't there was a huge amount of criticism coming from the forum secretariat. So it's a, you know, it's it's not, it's a complex, it's a complex environment um, into which he's stepping, but certainly he comes with an awful lot of baggage. He comes into that job, he will come into that job at a very critical time, obviously, as we know there's a lot going on. Um, he has previously 
caused a certain amount of disruption at the regional level. We remember that when the forum leaders met in Nauru, there were issues in relation to kerfuffle with the Chinese delegation, both in relation to their visas and then in relation to a walkout during the dialogue partners meeting. And uh, Baron Wanga was very dismissive of the Chinese delegation. Now, obviously, his country, Nauru, has a very strong relationship with Taiwan. And that, you know, things on that score have not got any easier since that incident. So there's definitely a degree of interest to know how he's going to manage that. Obviously, he will take on a role that means he represents the region as a whole, not just his country. And so he will be expected and supported in managing a range of relationships, both with with the membership and with the dialogue partners. And where does all of this leave the current Secretary-General, Henry Puna, when his tenure is up next year? He's been looking very kind of sprightly and unhappy. So I imagine that he's, you know, I can't see that he's finished yet. One of the things that came out of the Special Leaders Retreat was a a tasking for a scoping for the forum to have a, a dedicated office or a dedicated envoy to both Washington and New York to look after relations with the US and with the UN on behalf of the forum. So maybe that would be uh, something that Mr. Puna might feel he was able to take on for a while. So I'm sure we, I'm sure he will make. He's got. He's still got plenty of work to do whilst he's in this job. We know that he's been working very hard on this issue of discharge of wastewater from Fukushima, and he'll be continuing that. He'll obviously be working with his team to affect the smooth handover to Baramwanga next year, but I'm sure he's also, he'll also be looking to line up something else for himself afterwards, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Remote areas in the Pacific are on the verge of getting fast internet as low-Earth orbit satellite internet providers look to enter the market. Starlink, the company owned by tech billionaire Elon Musk, is trying to get the Cook Islands hooked up as soon as possible. And in Vanuatu, people are sneaking the company's equipment into the country. Caleb Fotheringham has more. Slow internet could soon be a thing of the past in the Pacific's most isolated regions, with Starlink looking to soon enter the regional market. The company uses thousands of satellites orbiting close to the planet to deliver the service. Paul Brislin, Chief Executive Officer of the New Zealand Telecommunications Forum, says low-Earth orbit satellite companies like Starlink were an ideal solution for people living in remote areas. He says they're far more cost-effective than building a fibre connection to an isolated property. I think we're going to see satellite coverage in parts of the world that have never had voice or data services before, and that's, that's very exciting for people who are working at the extreme edges of civilization. You know, They will be able to stay in touch. However, Mr Brislin says there are limitations, including the service getting congested if there are too many users in the same area. second problem is probably something anybody who's watched the cricket during a rainstorm has come across, which is the satellite reports back rain fade. And that means that it can't get the signal through the atmosphere in order to deliver the content. Cook Islands Competition and Regulatory Authority Chair Bernard Hill says Starlink wants to enter the Cook Islands as soon as they can. There's a lot of interest in having that option of a Starlink antenna and having direct-to-the-sky access, and that includes the Painua, the other islands, the Northern Group Islands in particular. 
which have very small populations, but where something like Starlink could be quite a game changer. Three companies currently provide internet services to the Cook Islands, with Vodafone being the main player. Mr Hill says another company joining the market was good for competition. What's necessary is that there is an option for some people, and that tends to lead the market in terms of people's appreciation of quality and value, and has a price impact as well. Meanwhile, in Vanuatu, people are already using Starlink, despite the company not being approved to operate. The country's telecommunication regulator earlier this month warned any of the company's equipment brought into the country will be confiscated until it gets a licence. The regulator's competition and consumer affairs manager, Roger Jimmy, says people were using the service illegally. We have a number of people who told us they're using Starlink and uh, at the moment we were working closely with the customs department to inspect all the equipment uh, entering the country. Mr Jimmy says Starlink did not know how this could have happened. They told us that they have no idea of what's going on or why people are bringing devices to Vanuatu. It seems that people possess this either from New Zealand or Australia and bring it to Vanuatu. Mr Jimmy says Vanuatu's telecommunication regulator was working in collaboration with Starlink to get the company a licence to operate. RNZ Pacific reached out to Starlink, who declined an interview. But a spokesperson says they are focused on rolling out the service all around the world. For months, motorists in Papua New Guinea have struggled to get fuel because the importers have been struggling to get enough fuel imported. The companies, along with other businesses in PNG, have lamented a lack of foreign exchange to pay for their imports. The foreign exchange crisis in the country has deep roots, and Don Wiseman spoke with the president of the Port Moresby Chamber of Commerce, Rio Fioco, about the problems and the efforts being made to overcome them. It's a long-standing issue. It goes back to about 2014 when the central bank revalued the Kina. At the time, the Kina was under pressure and was slowly depreciating. And the central bank at that time, surprisingly for the business community, revalued the Kina upwards uh, and also set limits for the commercial banks to trade. So effectively, the Kina was revalued upwards, whereas the academic and other experts were saying, in fact, the Kina was overvalued. Uh, Its true value was probably 20 or even 30 percent overvalued and were calling for a devaluation. A devaluation of the Kina would have greatly assisted the exporters, in particular the agricultural sector. But of course that also means your cost of imports, such as fertiliser and foodstuffs on the shelves in the supermarkets, would also increase. So we've had this uh, imbalance since 2014 or thereabouts in what is coming in to the country as dollars for exports and demand for imports because uh, all of our foodstuffs, all of our fuel, etc. are uh, imported. And uh, there is an imbalance between the dollars flowing in and the dollars flowing out. I should add that it's a strange situation because on a true balance of payments, uh, Papua New Guinea's exports far exceed our imports, particularly because of the exports of our liquefied natural gas. But the problem is, and the same too with our gold exports from Lahir Gold Mine and copper exports from Octedi, etc. Most of these, in the case of the LNG exports in the Papua LNG project managed by ExxonMobil, 
as the operator, most of those payments for the exports of LNG firstly go to servicing the debt on that project. So in the case of the PNG LNG project, which commenced exports in 2014, the loan is still outstanding and is predicted to be paid off by 2025 or 2026 depending on the uh, vagaries of the uh, oil price at the time. Thank you for all that background. The critical thing and the the reason for me calling was that I know that there are significant fuel shortages, and this has been going on for several months now, and this has been put down to foreign exchange or lack of foreign exchange. So what's the solution? You need an immediate solution, don't you? So what is it? Well, the short answer is that the importers, and there are two main importers, one is a company called Puma Oil and the second one is ExxonMobil, they need dollars to pay for their uh, imports of of, uh, fuel, petrol, diesel and Jet A1 Avgas. That's as simple as that. And the central bank and the commercial banks must find them the the dollars. Otherwise, they can't pay the uh, exporters and no fuel is supplied. It's as simple as that. And will that happen? Well, it has happened in the last couple of months, only after Puma have told their suppliers, their customers, that uh, they will not be able to supply because they're running out of stock. And uh, if they don't get more dollars to order another tanker load of fuel to come into the country, there won't be any Jet A1 fuel. And likewise, there'll be no more petrol and diesel. So last weekend, the Puma service stations were limiting purchases to 20 kina for uh, petrol and diesel. Which is almost nothing. Which is not even enough for, certainly not enough for the taxi drivers and PMVs to operate, and and as, as well as everyone else, yes. So there would be a lot less vehicles on the road right now, I imagine. No, fortunately, uh, after the uh, the rationing that happened on the weekend, on the Monday, the Deputy Prime Minister, Honourable John Rosso, called the parties together, Puma, along with the Central Bank, and uh, an agreement was reached and the dollars were made available so that they could order, could order another tanker load of fuel. So kick the can down the road, really. The problem itself hasn't been solved. Well, the acting governor of the central bank has now committed that every month the central bank will put in another 100 million kina into the market to balance the inflows of foreign exchange to the commercial banks. But uh, Puma Energy have reportedly saying that they need 80 million US dollars a month just for their own purchases. As you know, because of the uh, war in Ukraine, the price of fuel has gone up dramatically. So they needed 80 million themselves. And of course, you've got every other customer in PNG screaming out uh, to their banks they need uh, foreign exchange to order supplies uh, parts etc etc and the reserve bank has the resources to perhaps go to two three or four hundred million for instance well that is the uh, that is the question we we don't know the central bank is cautiously managing the dollars they have in reserve obviously we don't want to be in a situation like other countries have been where they couldn't pay for imports so they're being uh, cautious managing the foreign exchange but of course they have to predict it against outflows that uh, the government has for uh, loan repayments uh, as well as keep a, a balance on, on the kina It's been just over four weeks since the torrential rainfall and flash floods hit Auckland, forcing hundreds out of their homes and claiming four lives. South Auckland's Mangere was among the worst affected areas with thousands of people seeking food and shelter at the Mangere Welfare Centre. Susana Suisuiki visited two of the flooded streets in Mangere and spoke to some of the residents to check in on how they're doing. 
Long-time residents in Mangere's Bidi Place say they never imagined that one day they would have to row out of their street to safety. A month on since the Auckland floods, Miss Selina and her daughter Nancy are staying at a motel, but Nancy says there's no place like home. She's just really, like, bugging about uh, really wanting to come back home. She's kind of homesick. Oh. We just don't like the motel. It's, it's something new because we've been staying here for, like, this is the first time. Yeah. For us to ever have anything, we've never left. On that fateful Friday night, the heavy rainfall caused Te Ararata Creek to overflow, seeping into the surrounding homes and submerging vehicles that lined the street. Miss Alina says they were left in the dark when the power failed and the situation hit home when she saw her neighbour sailing past on a boat. I opened the window and said, um, can you help? But I, I don't believe, I'm not believe it. the water has come inside. Samoan community leader Paul Mark lives next door, but his house has been yellow-stickered and flood-damaged items are strewn around the property. Paul is currently staying with his sister in Manurewa, but says the floods have uprooted his life. He says securing a new home is challenging as he has his parents' needs to consider. We're trying to find a place that's accessible, that has a ramp and a walk-in shower. For my mom. My mom is a wheelchair user. Just minutes away is Caraval Close, where Luisa Opitaya lived, but she says her house has become a shell. Salvageable belongings are piled in each room, but the bottom half of the walls have been taken out and the home is uninhabitable. Luisa is staying at emergency accommodation in the city, but says with meals not included, it's becoming stressful. I don't want to appear ungrateful, but it's just hard, and there are families living in this hotel with us who have kids. And, you know, they're stuck in the inner city where there aren't many places to eat apart from fast food. Um, and they can't cook for their kids. While much of the country's attention has turned to cyclone recovery efforts, the affected residents of Mangare say they're still suffering. So there's all these other kind of struggles, you know, that are still continuing even though it's a month later. So, yeah, I mean, the ground has dried up but the struggles that we're going through still continue. Four weeks on from the flash flood that tore through their streets and turned their lives upside down, the residents of Beatty Place and Caraval Close are left wondering what the future holds for them. Despite staying in warm and safe places for the time being, they know it's not a long-term solution and that it won't be a quick or easy mission rebuilding their lives. If you've been directly affected by the flash floods in Auckland and still require assistance, Te Ora Pacific Regional Coordination Hub and South Seas, based in Otara, will continue to provide support across the region. You can contact South Seas at 0800 31 13 31 or Te Ora Pacific Regional Coordination Hub at 0800 that's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me, next time more.